Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel here with co-host Elias Randall. Elias, we had a lot of fun last week. Fourth of July, one of my favorite holidays. Do you guys do anything fun? It's one of your favorite. It's I think it's my number one favorite uh, holiday. I don't know. Like it's one of my favorite. I'm not really that into fireworks. I mean, I'll watch them, but you know, some people like have to watch fireworks. Yeah, I'm lukewarm on it. I mean, I have a good fireworks story, but we'll, we'll get like, to that after you tell me how your day was. I like watching the fireworks. I def I don't set them off. I'm somewhat scared of that kind of stuff. So you know, we have a client who does fireworks shows all summer long. They were in actually a couple weeks ago. I did not know that. Yeah, huh. so he, they do um, Boom Town Out in Vinton. They did them at Lyle Park. Uh, he helps with it, but it's like his hobby. And they were in a couple weeks ago, and it was funny. You know, he can't hear because he's been lighting off explosives for like 20 years, so I have to be looking right at him so he can read my lips with the hearing aids in. <sighs> and we were talking about hobbies, and he goes, you know what the great thing about my hobby is? I get to enjoy it on somebody else's dime. That's he figured out like the secret sauce to <laughs> yeah. hobbies. I wish mine were on someone yeah. else's. And dime. his wife's on board, so this is what they do in the summer. They travel around and they help set up these fireworks shows. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. But you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. And and I want to find out what happened on your Fourth of July. But let me introduce the show. And today we're actually going to talk about how to recover from financial mistakes. And for a long time, Elias, I've, I've mentioned that, you know, if you make a financial mistake before retirement, you can have an opportunity to fix it. You could get a second job. You could, you know, cut back your expenses. You have time to fix it. But for people in retirement, making a financial mistake can be detrimental. But now that I'm thinking about the show and in our client who does the fireworks, he just avoided making a financial mistake with his hobby in retirement. Yeah, because he's not spending any money to enjoy his hobby, which is like mind boggling to me. And I don't think I'm going to start doing fireworks shows so I can have a hobby that someone else pays for. So first thing let's just hit on and I want to talk about is, you know, how to recover if you overspend or make a mistake in retirement, because ultimately we're humans. Humans aren't perfect. There's a chance you're going to make a money mistake in retirement. And if we do that, what are the ways that we can recover? You know, what are the different things that we can do? Um, but but I kind of start by talking about, you know, if I had two different clients and, and I actually had this scenario with a person I was on the phone with, a younger person I was on the phone with a couple of weeks ago. But just take a look at two clients. I've got Joe and I've got Kevin side by side. And they both retired in the year 2000. They both had $2 million accumulated. We invested both of their money in a 60-40 portfolio. So up until this point, they're identical from for all intents and purposes, okay? I mean, same money, same age, same retirement date, same portfolio. Here's the difference. Joe said he needed a 4% withdrawal rate. He, he needed 80 grand a year. Kevin said or told us that he needed 160,000 per year to make his lifestyle work. That's about 8%. And before I get into the study, let, let's talk about that because a lot of people have $2 million. 
would see $160,000. They feel like they have a, quite a bit of money and they probably believe they could spend 160000 But But here's the reality of the story. And I just looked over, you know, basically 20, a little over 20 plus years or like 22, 23 years. Joe, who is taking $80,000 out of his account, had $3.2 million. So not only did his account grow, he took 80,000 a year out. And, and if we look at the timing, timing here, it's exactly the same. Kevin, on the other hand, he ran out of money in year 2016. And part of the reason is he's taking 160,000. What the other part of this story is, is remember the year in which they started? 2000. 2000. Right. That was right before the great or right before the tech bubble. So and they think about started what happened. in a bear market or he an start, upcoming bear market. He started, yeah, he started at a high point, right? Like that's yeah. the risk to most people's retirement is that you end up starting retirement in a year in which your account went down 15, 20%. And I think the people last year, people who retired at the beginning of 2022 or at the end of 2021, this happened to their portfolio. Okay. I want to look even further. Joe. He, he has $3.2 million, and guess what? He had the great financial crisis, too. So Joe weathered two of the worst stock market crashes we've seen. He weathered the lost decade, which basically was a 0% return from 2000 to 2010. The return was zero. It was the same. Joe managed to increase his portfolio $1.2 million because he had a very sustainable withdrawal rate. Kevin, on the other hand, was out of money by 2016. And part of the reason Kevin was out is because year one, when the market went down, guess what happened? He started cutting branches off of his tree, couldn't produce the same amount of apples. Yeah. So I think that's a really important thing to realize is you need to have a realistic withdrawal rate. And I think people get skewed by this a little, Elias. I had... um. I was on the phone with a young individual the other day and he said, well, if I make 8% a year, then I could take 8% a year out of my retirement account when I retire. And I said, well, that won't work. And he goes, well, why if I'm making eight? I said, because you haven't accounted for variance. And we started talking about compound interest and sequence of returns. And this is a smart individual. He's actually a graduating medical student. The light bulb went off. He goes, oh, now I get it. Because once I cut the branches off my apple tree, the apples can't grow again. So how do we actually recover from this if you're overspending? So we're going to talk about Kevin. You know, first thing you have to do is you have to stop the bleeding. You know, if you need to spend 160000 a year and you're retired, you got to figure out where this is going. Because most people, 160000 a year, it's more than just the essentials to live a good lifestyle. And if, you, if you're spending that much, well, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd argue that most people that believe they need one hundred and sixty thousand in retirement probably didn't make more than that if they only accumulated two million dollars. Like there was a disconnect there because yeah, if somebody your savings rate was either not high enough or you're increasing your lifestyle quite a bit. Bingo. So we got to figure out what are how do we get rid of non-essential spending not completely but get this under control so the first thing anybody listening to this should do that's retired is 
what's my withdrawal rate? And it's pretty easy to figure out. You know, you just say, hey, how much should I take out of my account divided by what I started with? That's my withdrawal rate. And realistically, where should you be? Probably somewhere between three and 5%. Um, the good news based upon what's happened in today's economy, it's a little easier to sustain it with higher withdrawal rate because there's 5% yield on stuff today. You're not getting locked into things that are paying you one and 2%. You can get things without much risk that pay four and 5%. The second is reevaluate your spending and lifestyle habits. You know, maybe you're, and we see this a lot. Maybe you're going to happy hour four days a week now because you're tired. And, and I can think of a couple situations where I've had people that never went to happy hour, but now they're retired and the happy hour started at three. And then, you know, one or two days a week. And then it was three o'clock every day because he got some friends. And then it got moved up to one o'clock. So they had to have lunch and happy hour. Mm -hmm. And that bill just keeps getting bigger. So, you know, if, if you find yourself spending more than you think you are, figure out what am I doing different with my life? And a good thing to do is track your spending. I, I did this, started doing this like two years ago. I do a budget. I do a general budget each month. So I have an idea where my money's going. But to dial it in, I went and started using uh, Quicken. So I can say, hey, this is where we're spending our money. And the amount of money we were spending on food blew my mind. I had no idea. Because on food, are you talk, you're talking groceries and out to eat restaurants. Yeah. And you know what I do. I enjoy taking clients to happy hour, meeting people for a cocktail, but it's morphed into more than just happy hour. Hey, let's order some food. And pretty soon you're spending. $60, $70 a day. I enjoy paying when I take people out. Like very rarely, I'm like, Elias, you're picking up the bill. I enjoy paying. But I looked at him like, well, maybe I so should. So that, that never happens. What you said what? very rarely. And you, you never, never pick... made me pick up the bill. No, I enjoy paying. But that's something I could look at and say, if I if I was overspending, my withdrawal rate was over 4 or 5%. What can I cut back? And it doesn't mean I have to cut back on everything. Maybe it's just I don't need the order of wings and the fries and the fried pickles. Maybe we just get the fried pickles. And if you're doing that four days a week, that's going to add up to like 50, 60 bucks a week. That's a meaningful impact for people. I think another, uh, as far as the spending and lifestyle habits, I think one, it's not super common because not every family wants to have a second house. But I know there are people that maybe while they're working, they have a second house, like a cabin or a lake house or something. Or they've always thought, hey, when we retire, we want a place in Iowa and a place in um, a southern state that's warmer. And sometimes that's not realistic for the, the amount of money that they've saved. Um, but that, that can also be something that you plan for, right? And if you build it into your plan early enough, um, you can probably hit that goal, but sometimes I think people get to that point and then it's a little bit disappointing when they realize that they really can't afford to do that. And it's something they really wanted to do. You got to build it in. And it reminds me of the client that we had Elias that, um, he was really trying to dial in his financial future, like what it looked like. And he wanted to have an airplane and most people say, well, I want an airplane. Well, this individual gave us how much the airplane was going to cost what the deferred maintenance was going to be every year, the insurance cost, how much he planned on or how long he planned on having the airplane. Cause he was realistic that when I'm 82, I'm not taking the airplane up. 
right? I yeah, mean, at some he, point, you're not going to fly anymore. Yeah, he really dialed it in, so we were able to model it in the plan. That's how you have to do it if you want to have these toys in retirement that you didn't have when you were working. You know, you mentioned second homes. I've had a second home. People underestimate the cost to maintain the second home. Partly because you're not there. So but, Right, you're not there, but it still costs money. Well, it here's where it costs money. Traveling to go down there and check on it throughout the winter, yeah. one. Or you have to hire a service to do it. And basically, if you want to enjoy your vacation place, you have to outsource everything. You know, you don't want to show up and have to mow your grass when you get there. You don't have to pull the weeds. You don't want to clean the place when you leave. Like, you just want to show up. So it's underestimated how much it would cost. So you kind of got to evaluate where can I cut back? And I think the good news for people is just because you overspend a little bit doesn't mean it's over. So what I did in this scenario is I modified it. Elias, and I said, well, what if Kevin, who is spending 160000 a year, six years into retirement, said, well, wait, I have to make a change. So maybe he sold a vacation house or maybe he just got to the point where, you know, I don't need as many vacations, which we see a lot in retirement, right? Uneven spending, spend more early. If Kevin, six years into retirement, would have reduced his spending to $80,000, he would have, in year 2022, had $1.3 million. Yeah, so, so his it, account went down, but only slightly because he got back to a reasonable withdrawal rate. It wasn't that he ran out of money. He just had to have a little bit less of a lifestyle. And what this really illustrates and shows is that you can make a mistake, but you got to figure it out. You have to figure out that you're doing it. And the good news for our clients, Elias, and you know this, we have the talk with them if we think they're overspending. We don't ever tell somebody what they can do with their money, but it's our job to say, hey, look, we don't believe this is a sustainable path long term. And they have a choice. They can take our advice or they don't have to. Most people take the advice, and if they don't heed our advice, then we've done our job. And, you know, if they choose to blow through the money, then it kind of falls onto their plate. I think this scenario also supports um, that what we talk about a lot, a unique financial plan. Because this scenario supports that you can have times in retirement that you're spending over the, we all know that the 4% safe withdrawal rule is a rule of thumb, right? But this does support that you can have periods of time where you spend more than your long-term safe withdrawal rate. And I think that is, to me, that's a another thing that people should consider because I really, I like to see people spending and enjoying their money Right. Like you, which is hard to do. Right. Because you save and save and save for so long. So you got to think about it a little bit differently. But um, I think this also lends itself to what oh, I hope I can like all the things we talk about. Do you hope it works out or do you know it's going to work out? Wouldn't it wouldn't it be nice to just know, hey, for the first 10 years, I can spend X and I'm not going to run out of money. So, well, what's the reality of it? The reality is at the end you're, you will have less, right? This also supports that, that you won't have the same account value, but you can't take it with you, right? Like the old saying is, you're not taking any of that money. It's going to get left behind. So um, th that's just a couple other things to consider with that.
So that's kind of like making mistakes in retirement. And the good news is you can recover from them. The other side of it, and this is probably more common that I see, I see this much more frequently than in retirement is people in their 20s and 30s prioritizing spending over the, over savings. You know, you talked about people who did a really good job of saving and then dropped the ball when they reached the finish line, which is retirement. And we've seen that where people accumulate a million or $2 million, they overspend. But let's talk about the people, and I'm gonna let you handle this, that drop the ball before they even get there. And that what they can do to kind of you know, change and recover from prioritizing cars and boats and all the other things in life over spending in their 20s and 30s. Because if you miss the 20s and 30s, what you just did is you just cut the value of compound interest in half. Yes. And this is the most, I, I think to me, this is the most common mistake by savers and investors is just not participating in saving and investing when you're young. And there's a lot of reasons to do it. Well, I'm not making enough money yet. Um, I have too much debt. I don't know where to start, right? It could be, it could be a number of reasons that, um, that impact that. But what I really like about this example is this shows the, this shows the power of compound interest over time. So we have a uh, investor one named Angela and investor two named Sarah. They're the, they are the same age. One twin sisters. Yep. They're twins, they're sisters and they're, and they're twins. I just thought it'd be good. Yeah. Um, they're sisters and twins. So they were born the exact same day. Angela started saving when she was 25 years old and Sarah started at 40 years old. So Angela at 25 years old started saving $400 per month. So at 65, she had put into her retirement plans $194,400 with a value then that grew to 1.376 million. Sarah waited to start investing until she was 40 did double the amount of Angela who's doing 400. So she's doing 800 per month, starting at 40 total contributions at 65. So the money she put into her savings and investments, $244,800 with an ending value of just under $700,000, $698,781. So what this really illustrates is the time value of money and how saving what's one, one thing a lot of people in our business say is the best time to save was yesterday. And so then the second best time would probably be today. And this shows you the power of starting when you're young. So does every 25 year old, would it be realistic for every 25 year old to save $400 a month? Maybe not, but I have a hard time believing that the majority of people can't save 50 bucks a week, which would basically be $200 a month. Well, you're here. I'm going to give you a good example. I, I got a call from a, from a customer and you know, what just happened here about a month ago is graduation. So these kids are all flush with money and They're this customer with the thousand or 2000 bucks. Uh, it's more, it's like four from graduation. Yeah. Party? So yeah. I mean, wow. anyways, uh, both of his prior two children took their graduation money and they'd worked. They took their graduation money, put it in a Roth IRA at 18 and both of them around four grand. So the last one, the son 
trying to figure out what he's going to do, and he's not sure he wants to, you know, put it into an investment. You know, he's thinking he's just going to maybe spend it, whatever. So dad called me up and said, hey, can you give me something to show to my youngest son if we just go back, find an investment that we would use, the actual investment we're going to use, what would this have grown to by the time he was 60? So at 41 years, roughly. So he said 4,000. And if he invests the four, I'm going to give him a thousand. So dad's like, give him a kicker to do this, right? He's like, I'm going to give you another thousand. So $5,000 single deposit 41 years ago in a growth fund. So a growth mutual fund, not just the S and P 500, but geared towards growth. What do you think it grew to? 600,000. Good guess. 533,000. That's 11.75% rate of return. This is a real investment. Five, 533? 533. 533,000. Really so I haven't heard back because this just happened a few days ago. I'm going to guess kid's going to opt to put this four grand away, but that shows the power of it. He, he can have $533,000 potentially, obviously, past performance doesn't mean it's going to do that in the future. But if it's anything similar, this kid's set for life. If he just goes and makes a minimum contribution to his 401k to get the match, he's not going to have any problems whatsoever. He's so far ahead. Yeah. So, so the other question on this topic, so how, how does someone recover from not saving early? So, you know, if you wait, so we know the cost of waiting, right? We just illustrated that. Well, developing a plan so doing some kind of financial planning is a really good idea and we know we have a we have a customer a client who what when he first started working with us was like borderline probability of success like it was pretty low 50 or 60 which is not it's not terrible right like you're not it's not zero well laid out action items and then they chipped away at those action items and now they've hit all of their goals. They're going to be able to retire and do everything that they want to do. They just needed a little bit of help getting that dialed in. Another thing you can do, and this is a, this is one of the best things, take advantage of the catch-up contributions. So when you're over 50, you can put more into your IRA accounts and your 401k accounts. So to make it very simple, the real solution to this is to save more, right? If you wait, you have to save more. Well, that's what those catch-up contributions allow you to do. But I can take the flip side of that. And if you start early and then, because when you're 50, when you can kick in the catch-up, most people in their 50s are making the most money they've ever made. So doing those extra contributions is, is more realistic. So if you start early, it's still more meaningful because now you're just adding more fuel to the fire. I mean, think about it. This year, the catch-up, you husband and wife over 50 can put in 30,000 each into their 401k. Yeah, you, and that's, that's assuming that there's no after-tax opportunities at the employer. I mean, it's 30,000 each. That's right, 60,000 bucks. You can make up a lot of, a lot of ground fast at 60 grand a year. Right. But it's going to take, it's going to take all, it's going to take 60 grand. It's right? going to take some And pain. if your, if your habits haven't been there to be able to save that, that's, it's going to be hard to get to that point. And that's what it's going to take. Um, the other, another option, you may have to delay your retirement. You may have to work longer. Well, what's the reason? To put more contributions in um, or redesign your retirement lifestyle. Like at some point, your money can only make so much 
more money, right? Like it'd be great if we had an investment that could pay 25%. That'd make things a lot easier. But that's not the reality of how uh, the business works, not the reality of the capital markets. So you may have to look at downsizing a home, paying off debt. Maybe you don't buy something that you really want. You might have to delay some of those things. But, you know, there's no... It, there's really no magic bullet. It's going to be one of these things and or a combination of all three. And that's really determined based on your age, where you're currently at, right? Because the older, the older you get, the less saving more money can really help you because you don't have time for your money to be invested. So kind of as you get older, the options get more limited where someone who's 60 maybe saving more isn't going to help them that much or in their best interest. Or it might be best to, over the next five years, pay off all of your debt, go into retirement with no debt. You're going to have your Social Security, maybe get some income out of the uh, retirement assets. But but those are, those are really the options on how to recover uh, from not starting early. So it, again, it's not, it's not a um, a problem that doesn't have a solution, but it's probably not going to be the easiest solution. There's going to be some pain involved with any one of those. One of the easiest ways to figure out what the solution is to is have it modeled, model it through a financial plan. Can all be modeled. We can, we can show somebody because you mentioned something. Okay. You're 60. People feel like they should save more if they're going to retire at 65, which maybe they should. But let's say they have this mortgage that's not going to be paid off at 65. There's a lot of cases where they're going to be better off hammering out the mortgage versus trying to save more. Because five years, there's a minimum amount of compounding that happens on that money. And if you start to equate a $2,000 a month mortgage payment, principal and interest, let's say, $2,000 a month, well, I'd throw the question back. We mentioned earlier, what's the safe withdrawal rate? Safe withdrawal, let's call it 4%. 4% yeah. So arguably, if you could knock a $2,000 per month mortgage out in five years, the question becomes, could you save $600,000 in four years? Because that's what you need to generate. 600000 no. times 0.04 generates your $2,000 a month mortgage payment. Yeah, so most people in that situation at, at 60, the answer would be no. You basically... Over five years, you'd have like a hundred. You'd have to commit to a hundred thousand a year, right? And but the thing is, people aren't trained to think that way. People are just trained to think, "Hey, I got to save more to retire." Well, this is where having yeah. a plan. We can model two scenarios. Hey, Mister Client, how much can you save? This is the effect on your income in retirement if you save that much more. Or let's say you don't save any more and you pay off this house. This is the impact in retirement. So you can model all the decisions. You don't have to guess at this stuff. And that's right. And that's how you get a specific answer for your situation, right? That's how you, and that's how you put action items in place to do what's in your best interest in your situation. Well, and let's be honest, Elias, if, if you're living large in your twenties and thirties, it probably means you're living large on borrowed money. And it's, I mean, let's be honest, it's pretty hard to live large in your 20s and 30s on your cash flow because there's not that many. 
people balling out when they're 25 years old, but they might look can, like they you are. You can ball out on a credit card. You can ball out on a credit card all you want. You can get another one and another one and another one, yeah. but you're just going to get in trouble. So, you know, the, the next segment just leads me into the next segment of, hey, how do you recover if you've been living large on borrowed money? And, you know, I feel like whether this is true or not, I almost feel like credit cards has become somewhat of commonplace or seen as essential in daily life for a couple of reasons. One, people think they need to have a credit card because it's easier to, to transact. 20 years ago, people are still using cash. Most places, cash is kind of a thing of the past. In fact, there's places that don't take cash. You go to a Hawkeye basketball game, there's no cash. It's card only. Yeah, most events are no cash. No cash. Isn't Which, that most events now? Yeah, I understand why. Because as as a business, you basically eliminate the opportunity of theft through cash. Right. right? Logistically, it's easier. And too. it's also easier to track through a POS system and all those different things. Um, they're not spending the time handling money and counting change. It's just swipe the card. Uh, and I could go further into why I believe some of this happened. Some of it's the tipping world that we're in. They want to be able to put the tip on the bottom so they can pass some of their compensation for their employees to you, the consumer, the, the retail buyer. But that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, identity theft has become bigger. In fact, there, there's someone in our office I was talking to the other day, and I was trying to buy something at the grocery store. And it said card decline. I'm like, well, that's impossible. So I called my bank. The bank had a bank wide issue with debit cards where basically they just every transaction was getting declined for everybody. Hmm. And it took me like an hour and a half to fix it. I went and told someone in the office about it because I know he banks there, too. And he goes, well, I don't even have a debit card. I only use a credit card. Because someone steals your credit card or your debit card. They get your bank information. The credit card's limited to the amount of credit on that account. So I feel like credit cards have become seen as essential. The problem with that is as it's seen as essential for people becomes just rampant abuse because it's easy to not pay off the balance in full. You know, most people, when they use their credit card, what do they tell themselves? Well, I'm going to charge this thing for $200 because it's more convenient. And I'll just pay it off at the end of the month. Well, the reality the end of the month. They the reality want, what they happens. They only want 25 bucks. The reality of what happens, they have $8,000 on the credit card. The minimum payment's 250 bucks, and that's what they pay. Right. And it's going to take them forever to pay it off. And it credit card rates today, the interest is clicking away at like 2%. So you think about it, you got five grand on a credit card, you're going to spend $1,000 a year at least in interest. And you didn't pay off any of the balance. Zero. You're just paying interest to leave it there. So credit cards have become really, really tough on people. So how do you recover if, you, if you've got into this kind of credit card mess? Well, it's like anything we talk about. You have to develop a plan to eliminate it. And you'll agree, we believe the best plan is doing something called a debt snowball, which has been made popular by Dave Ramsey. You know, this technique existed before Dave existed, but he's the one who really popularized this method. And really it's a matter, it's simple. 
And that's why this works. If you have debts of any kind, you list your debts from smallest to largest. You don't worry about how much the interest rate is. That's the big mistake people make. And you start hammering out the small debts. And people will say, well, why wouldn't I pay the higher interest rate ones off first? Well, mathematically, that probably makes more sense. But most people aren't that dialed into mathematics. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have gotten this problem to begin with because they would have done the math on what 20% interest is. They wouldn't have got there. So let's forget that excuse. The reason the debt snowball works is because ultimately you're getting rewarded as you pay this off. So if you think about, have you ever seen, Elias, the clip on, uh, it's been on YouTube and Reels a lot, and it's a picture, it's a Marine, and he's giving like a graduation commencement speech. I have not. Okay. He talks about, you know, Marines and why the first thing they do is make their bed. Well, if the first thing you do is make your bed in the morning, you got the first small accomplishment done for the day, yeah. which makes the next accomplishment for the day easier. And the next one gets easier and the next one gets easier because you're in the groove. It's the same thing with paying off debt. When you have a $200 credit card and you pay it off, two things happens. One, you feel good about it. Two, you freed up that money to put onto the next debt you're going to pay. So that's why the debt snowball works. So have a plan as to how we're going to get out of this mess. Two... Sorry. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the the debt snowball, I think it's it's the best example of not everything in finance has to be, like you said, financially optimal or make sense mathematically. Be, and, and this is the best example because, yeah, the math says you should pay off the highest rate first, but that's not realistic. And it's more psychology and human behavior where the reward of accomplishing a task, just like making your bed. I saw a video the other day where this, um, I think whoever was produced it, they sell, I think they sell books or something, but he's talking about his routine. So he calls it micro task. He's like, so the first thing I do is I make my bed and I do a couple other little things so he's like trying to build momentum into his day to get geared up for the big task of working and things like that. And, and I think this is right in line with that where, um, and here's the other thing I know more people have paid off a lot of debt by using this method, right? Like it's a proven, it's proven that it works. Well, it's not us saying this. There's actually a lot of academia and studies out there revolving around either the debt snowball or the debt avalanche. The debt avalanche focuses on interest rates, snowball focuses on smallest debts and then rolling it in. And all the studies say the debt snowball is much more effective than the debt avalanche. And, you know, regardless of how you're going to do it, it really comes down to you got to understand your relationship with money. If you're a numbers person, once again, I'm going to argue you probably didn't get into this mess. Right. Yeah, you didn't. Yeah, financially savvy people are not running up credit card to live lifestyle. There's no way a person who's highly mathematical says, yep, it makes sense for me to spend $15,000 on this credit card and make the interest only payments at 20% a year. They don't do that. So that's why debt avalanche for the most part doesn't exist for these people. But develop a plan to pay it off. But then you got to develop a plan how to stay out of it. How many times have I seen it? Someone pays off all their debt. 
guess what? Oh, time for a new car. Right back into debt. Because yeah. they, they, they have the overconfidence. Well, I don't owe any money. I could get away with this. I had a individual come in here. This is probably seven years ago. And pension, couple social security checks. And they didn't have much, a lot of money saved for retirement, like 200,000 in this IRA. And they said they wanted to retire. I said, well, that's great. I go, how much do you spend? I don't know. I said, well, you're gonna have to figure that out first. But then the story went deeper. They said, you know, we have this home equity line of credit that we owe $70,000 on. House was paid for, but they owe 70,000 line of credit. And they said, we're thinking we should just take the IRA cash in and pay it off. I thought about it and I, I asked him a question. I said, well, are you scared to borrow money right now? Yeah, we're scared to borrow money. Like, cause they were pretty much maxed out. I said, I don't think you should cash the IRA to pay for this. I think you should buckle down and pay this off over time and work till it's paid off. They go, well, why? It didn't make more sense to pay it off. I said, financially, yes, but I'm fearful that your relationship with money will be as soon as this is paid off. We're no longer scared to borrow money. And they looked at me and they said, you know, you're probably right. So they put together a two year plan to get it paid off. And after that, I said to stay out of this mess, you got to figure out what you're spending because that's why you got here. You got here because you didn't know what you're spending. So develop a plan to stay out of debt. I use a budgeting software called everydollar.com. The reason is it's super easy. I know where my money's going. I can plug in what the paychecks are, how much I'm saving, what my house payment is, all those different things can go in here. So I have an idea of where the money's going. Am I great with tracking every dollar I spend? No, but I have a general idea of where it's going. I've got Quicken to track it. So every three months I can pull it up and say, where's all my money going? I can figure out where it's actually going. So. If you are making bad money mistakes, getting in debt, get it paid off, but then get a plan to not go back into debt. So, and another, another thing that we see, and this is um, typically with younger, younger adults, but bad credit scores. And it's maybe something a lot of people don't think about, but having a bad credit score can cost you. It can typically you're going to pay, um, higher interest rates when you borrow money. The only reason I know this, my wife worked for an insurance agency. Your credit does impact what they charge you on premiums for insurance. I don't know how many people even know that. I didn't know that until recently. Um, so first, let's talk about what determines your credit score. So everyone, I, most people are familiar with your FICO score. And they have categories of how they basically rank you and give you a score. So payment history is 35%. The amounts you owe is 30%. Length of credit history, 15%. Getting new credit, 10%. And then your mix of credit, 10%. So, okay, mix of credit, that's going to be what, like mortgage versus revolving credit? Yeah. So those are the two things that revolving credit definitely penalizes you more than mortgages. So what what a lot of the factors are is they'll have your total revolving credit line. So is it either revolving or fixed or what? Yeah, but the one that affects is revolving. So okay. what's revolving? Set that forth. That's your, if you have a home equity line of credit and your credit cards, that's debt you could pay off and then use the credit again, okay? If you go over about 15% of your credit usage, so let's say you have $100,000 of revolving credit, that's your credit cards, your home equity line of credit, you go, you, you have 15,000 on that. 
that's going to start to lower your credit score. So you got to keep that revolving credit under 15%. If you want to have a perfect credit score, but the number one thing is payment history. I mean, the first thing I would do for anybody that has like a credit problem, they clearly have debt. I would go set up every single account I have for auto pay, at least the minimum payment. 35% of your credit score is missing payments. Yeah, payment. Yeah, if you're all, even if you just pay the minimum and you're always paying on time, that's a good mark your, in your It's not in helping your, your debt situation, but it's helping your credit score. And then, you know, keep amounts owed, length of credit history. You really can't help that. Like, that just is what it is, however long you've had credit. But the other thing people don't realize are credit hits. And what those are is when they go pull your credit, every time they pull your credit, that lowers your credit score. So why is why is that? Because that means you're looking for a new line of credit. But that doesn't always mean that because your credit can get pulled on a background check or something. That doesn't affect your credit score. So that's there's, not there's a considered. Hard pull, there's a hard pull and there's a soft pull. So hard pulls are for borrowing money. Yeah, that would be like I'm going to buy a house. I'm taking out a new credit card. I'm buying a car. Those are hard pulls on your credit score. So like the, the soft insurance, pull from the an insurance, insurance thing you were company. Talking, that's a soft pull. That doesn't affect the credit score at all. That won't show up. Gotcha. So hard pulls affect it. And I, th- I want to say it's more than like two in 12 or 24 months starts to negatively affect. It's not the first one, but if somebody's out there applying for a credit card every three months, why is it? So if you ask, if you ask three banks to give you a rate on a mortgage, is that three considered three? One. It's one. So they'll batch it. Cause they're all looking for the same. Yes. Gotcha. But but here here's what I want people to think about. And every time we go to a store like Shields, I shop at Shields all the time. Do you want our credit card? My answer is no. Could I if use the points? If they're giving away yes. a free coffee mug, travel coffee mug, I say well, yes. I mean, they sometime, got me last time with that. But sometimes, that was like four years ago. Though. Yeah, but sometimes it's like I'm spending $1,500 and I can save $150. I don't do it because, number one, I don't need the credit. But number two, I don't want them to pull my credit score. So taking the free coffee cup like I did and I still use every day that was probably a foolish move probably shouldn't have done that I mean one time's okay but think if you but I just used one out of my two for 12 months and then what if I wanted to go what if I needed money shields and then you go to Von Maurer oh yeah you get my credit card today then you go to Best Buy and you're getting all these (laughs) you know interest-free financing all this stuff pretty soon you just wrecked your credit well 10 percent of your credit score you racked trying to get interest-free loans that you probably don't need. So that's a really easy way to fix part of this problem. So Elias, tell me what you think you would do if you were trying to recover from a bad credit score. Like what would your steps be to not, to get this credit up? And I mean, here's the good news about credit. It's really only that relevant if you need to borrow money. So if you're not borrowing money, it really doesn't matter that much. Now, no, we're it, all it proud of it, but, you know, once again, it's only if you really need to borrow money. Yeah. So first is, I think, just evaluating, okay, what is your score? What's causing it to be that? So then if you kind of know how it's weighted, then you can you can um, implement some stuff. And I, I think you made a really good point about auto pay on bills. If you can set all your bills on auto pay, so that means you're never missing a payment and that's the highest weighted part of the score is your payment history. So that's a really good strategy. Um, paying down, pay down your debt. Execute the debt snowball. Get out of debt. 
you've proved to all your creditors that you can pay them back, that's going to have a positive impact on your credit score. Um, so then when you really need it, right? Because at some point you're going to have to buy a vehicle, you're going to have to get a mortgage on a house. Well, those are hard, hard inquiries, right? So those are the times you want to do it, which I just learned from you that all those interest-free credit cards at all the different stores are considered hard inquiries. So I didn't know that's how it works. So avoid some of that stuff. Like if you don't need, if you don't, one, you just shouldn't do it. Just don't do it. That makes it simpler. Those things will help boost your credit score. Um, having bills like utility and phone bills can help. That's probably a really good way to start establishing some credit history. Like when you're in college, you rent a place or, and if, if you're renting a place where the utilities are going to be in someone's name, um, either split them up, like, Hey, I'll take the water, you take this, or just one person put them in their name, but that's going to help, help boost it as well. And I think another thing someone could do, if you're, if you have a bad credit score and like you can't stop spending money with credit cards and doing some of that stuff, you can always take a pair of scissors and cut your credit cards and throw them away and just quit using them. Again, is that going to be the easiest thing to do? No, but it might be the adult thing to do if the situation's bad enough. I'll tell you the easiest way to raise your credit score, pay off all your revolving debt. Yeah. Two reasons. It makes financial sense. You're not going to pay the interest. Just pay that off. Don't have to worry about late payments then. You don't have to worry about the interest you're paying. Your credit score is going to go up and you're only going to need the credit then if you're buying a house. If you avoid credit cards and you avoid revolving debt, most of these problems just go away. They, they do. And they do. Over time, they go away. It's it's really incredible how when you when you do all the prudent things, right, like very little debt, you have an emergency fund, you don't use your credit cards. When you're doing all those things, it just makes life easier. Well, Elias, with that said, you know, I know I've made mistakes with money. I know you've made mistakes. We've all made yep. mistakes. So there's two ways to handle this because we're all going to do it. What happens when we do it and how are we going to get out of the mess? Uh, with that said, if anybody's looking for help with uh, doing some planning, whether it's the retirement planning, whether it's you know planning how to fix some of these things in our life, you can go to btwellshow.com. I want to thank everybody for tuning into this week's episode. For more content, you can follow us on Facebook at BT Well Show. We'll see everybody next week. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.